Heavenly Father, we ask that you would send the Holy Spirit to us now, that he would then teach us so that we do not depart from your ways. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this morning we continue our series in the book of 2 Samuel. Uh, and of course, it's a, a history of the, the tensions between uh, the Israelites many years ago. And it's always good for us to be reminded, I think, as to where it falls into the history of Israel, uh, particularly for those of us who may not uh, remember so clearly uh, the, the, the plot line of, uh, of Israel's history. But basically, if you go back to the book of Genesis, what do you have? You have Adam and Eve firstly formed after God creates the world. And from those first parents, Adam and Eve, you eventually get a man called Abraham. In chapter 12 of Genesis, he shows up. And from him, you eventually get the 12 tribes of Israel, his great-grandsons of the 12 sons of a man called Israel, also known as Jacob. And those 12 tribes, uh, those 12 sons, take their families eventually to the land of Egypt uh, because one of those sons, Joseph, is able to provide for those families in Egypt when there's a famine in the land. Uh, but then they stay in Egypt and are oppressed by a pharaoh. Uh, they are enslaved uh, by pharaoh and they are persecuted quite heavily there. And so God raises up a man called Moses amongst them. And he is the one that leads the 12 tribes of Israel out of Egypt. And he leads them into the desert. And then they eventually get into the promised land, the land of Israel, under the leadership of a man called Joshua. After Joshua, you get a series of judges that look after the, the tribes of Israel. And the last of those judges is a man called Samuel. He is a great prophet of God, and he is given the responsibility of doing quite a few things. But one is, is getting the first king of Israel on the throne. Uh, that king is King Saul. Uh, Saul is the first king of Israel. Uh, Saul starts off well, but then shows his true colours and continues to sin against God. And so God then anoints another king called David to take over the kingdom of Israel. Saul then dies in battle amongst the Philistines. The Philistines are another uh, group of peoples that are quite hostile to the Israelites. Uh, Saul dies in battle, and as a result, uh, one of his sons, Ishbosheth, is put on the throne by Saul's commander called Abner. We've seen Abner in the text that we've got before us today, and Ishbosheth there. Ishbosheth then is put as king over all Israel. But meanwhile, David is still king of Judah. After the death of Saul, Judah, his tribe, David's tribe, makes him king. And so you've got what is a civil war happening in the land of Israel. You've got 11 tribes that are following a man called Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, the first king of Israel. But then you've got this, and with Abner, the commander of Saul's army, helping Ishbosheth, and even Ishbosheth saying that he's made, uh, Ab uh, sorry, Abner saying that he made Ishbosheth king. Uh, and then you've got David and the civil war that's going on. And we started to see that last week, the terrible nature of the civil war, as these two kingdoms actually sent armies to fight against one another and the devastation that was caused. And so what do we see today in chapter 3? Well, we don't see much resolution of the tension that is there uh, between the kingdoms of Judah and the kingdom of Israel. Instead, we see that the, the land of Israel is really a mess in terms of its leadership. The leaders of the people of God are a real mess. How do we see the land described in verse 1, the opening verse of chapter 3? It says, The war between the house of Saul, that's the, the, house, uh, the, the house of Saul which is ruling over uh, all of Israel, and the house of David, which is ruling over the tribe of Judah, lasted a long time. David grew stronger and stronger, while the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. So what do we see in the land of Israel? Well, we see that the leadership of at least 
The kingdom of Israel, as we first see it described there in verse 1 of chapter 3, is a kingdom that is being led by a very weak man, that the house of Saul is growing weaker and weaker. And as we look at the text and what follows, we see that clearly Ishbosheth is a bad leader. He's not a very good leader of God's people. How do we know? Well, we see it by the conflict that he has with Abner, the commander of his army, and who was previously the commander of his dad's army, a commander of Saul's army. We see the conflict here. What happens between Ishbosheth and Abner? Well, Abner, the commander of Saul's army and the commander of Ishbosheth's army, is proudly seeking his own gain in Saul's house. We see in verse 6, what does it say in verse 6? During the war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner had been strengthening his own position in the house of Saul. He's meant to be a servant of Ishbosheth, but instead it seems like he is self-serving. He is trying to strengthen his own place, because remember he is actually related to Ishbosheth as well. He's like a cousin of Ishbosheth. And so it seems that he is strengthening his position as part of the house of Saul as well. And so what does Ishbosheth do as Abner seems to be getting stronger and stronger? Well, Ishbosheth makes an accusation against Abner of sleeping with the concubine, uh, the woman of Saul, uh, the previous king. We see that in verse 7. It said, now Saul, that's the previous king, the first king of Israel, had had a concubine. This is a woman that he would sleep with but not, would, be, would not be his wife. And her name is Ritzpah, daughter of Ar. And Ishbosheth said to Abner, why did you sleep with my father's concubine? Why is this such an offence for Ishbosheth? Well, taking members of the harem of a king was actually a claim to the throne. We'll see this later. Well, I'm not sure how much later. Um, it'll be a while before we get there. But there's another claim to the throne much further on in the book of Kings uh, where there's uh, someone who used to be uh, sleeping with the king and someone asked for that uh, woman to be his wife. And it's taken as an offence because it's a claim to the throne. And that's what's going on here as well. Uh, Abner has... There's something going on between him and this woman named Ritzpah, and it is seen to be a claim for the throne. And Ishbosheth knows this, and so therefore he rebukes Abner for it. But what is Abner's response? Well, we see he gets very angry. He knows what's being uh, in, uh, put forward, that he is making some sort of claim to the throne by this woman, Ritzpah. And so what is his response? Well, in verse 8, we see Abner was very angry because of what Ishbosheth said. And he answered, Am I a dog's head on Judah's side? This very day I am loyal to the house of your father Saul and to his family and friends. I haven't handed you over to David, yet now you accuse me of an offence involving this woman? He gets very angry. And he gets very proud in this moment. His pride is leading to his anger that he would be accused of doing something wrong with this woman. And what does he do in response? He gets angry and then he says, basically, I can take the people of Israel who you're reigning over and give them to David instead. And we see that in verse 9. May God deal with Abner, be it, very so, ever, be it ever so severely, if I do not do for David what the Lord promised him on oath and transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and establish David's throne over Israel and Judah from Dan to Beersheba. Here we see that Abner... He's a very proud man. He thinks he owns the kingdom of Israel and he can transfer it to anyone he wants. And he makes that very clear to his king, meant to be his king, Ishbosheth. And what is Ishbosheth's response? Well, we see his weakness very clearly. Uh, we see that he gets afraid of Abner and doesn't dare say another word. Verse 11 Ishbosheth did not dare to say another word to Abner because he was afraid of him. 
And so what do we see of the leadership of Israel? See, they're bad leaders. On one hand, you've got a king who is weak and fearful. And on the other hand, you've got a commander, another leader of God's people, who is a man who is very proud and a very angry man. And so another person that is a bad leader of the people of Israel. But what about David? Isn't he going to be a good leader? Isn't he going to be the saviour of God's people? Isn't he going to be the leader that everybody wants? Isn't David's house getting stronger and stronger according to verse 1 of chapter 3? Isn't David surely going to be the hope of the people of Israel as they see the bad leadership happening in Israel with Ishbosheth and Abner? Well, in one sense, David's house definitely starts to look stronger, particularly as we look at chapter 3. Why? Well, David has multiple wives from verses 2 down to verse 5. We see six wives listed there from verse 2 to verse 5 that join David in his household. Now, how are wives a sign of strength? Well, having a large harem for a king was a sign of power and wealth. Why? Firstly, you need lots of money to support all those wives that you have. Uh, it is a costly business to have a large home because, of course, you've got to support the wives themselves. And then, of course, what happens with wives? You generally have children. And uh, they, are, of course, some of them are listed there in chapter 2, verse 5. It's not as though uh, David couldn't have children. And he had probably many more children. We get some of the other names and, and, of course, daughters. And, of course, to have those as part of your house, they all require money as well. They require wealth as well. So David's house is definitely getting stronger by the size of his family. And how else are wives a great strength? Well, they often bring alliances. It's not unknown for kings to marry in order to bring an alliance, to bring strength to their kingdom. Did David's marriages bring such alliances? Well, one very clearly does here in the text that is before us. Uh, we see in verse 3 that David um, married the daughter of the king of Geshur. Verse 3, it says uh, his, second wife, his second son was Kiliab, the son of Abigail, the widow of Nabal and Carmel. The third, Absalom, the son of Makkah, daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur. Uh, who is this king of Geshur? Well, Geshur is actually uh, a kingdom that was north on the eastern side of the Jordan of the land of Israel, which is actually just north of Mahanaim, which is where Ishbosheth is reigning. So if you think about it, David has a kingdom in the south here. Over the, on the eastern side of the Jordan and a bit of the north, uh, Ishbosheth is reigning. But just north of Ishbosheth, on the other side, sandwiched in the middle will be Ishbosheth, but on the other side is Geshur and his kingdom. And now David is related as a son in law to Geshur. And so, therefore, of course, through this marriage, he is getting stronger in that he has allied himself with an enemy now of Ishbosheth in the north. He has sandwiched Ishbosheth in by this alliance. And of course, we even know with his other, one of his other marriages, Abigail, she was a very wealthy woman in terms of her relationship with Nabal, her first husband. Uh, we met her in 1 Samuel. And so um, it's possible that she would have brought great wealth to the marriage uh, by her marriage to David as well. So wives are a sign of strength. Of course, you've got to support them, but they also bring alliances. Uh, with other families that are a great strengthening force in the kingdom. And, of course, they bring sons. I said before that they, of course, bring children, wives bring children. And what are sons good for, for a king? Well, they show that his kingdom will be a lasting dynasty. It's very fearful if a king does not have any sons. You see that with a man like King Henry VIII. 
He desperately wanted a son so that his kingdom would be shown to be strong and would continue and endure. And so what do we see here in verses 2 to 5? We see that there is hope for the kingdom of David. He has a lot of sons, and these sons are all listed here. And so there's a hope for the people of Israel that this will be a lasting dynasty. But as we look at David, and we start to have that hope that he will be the saviour of Israel, he'll be the one who is a good leader of Israel, what do we see as we look at verses 2 to 5? Well, we see David's sexual appetite, and this will lead to his downfall. He is a bad leader too. As we look at verses 2 through to 5, we see his bad leadership as well, that he has, of course, got much power, got much wealth, but what is he using it for? It's feeding his sexual appetite, which is a clear violation of God's law to have these multiple wives. In Deuteronomy 17, verse 17, it says specifically that the king must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. And if you go back to the book of Genesis and the way that men and women were created, it was meant to be that man and woman would come together in marriage and that there would be a one flesh union and not to be altered by anybody else. And so David is clearly in violation of God's law. Also, how else is it a weakness? Well, it's not very nice for the women, all these women that are then rivaling for attention with David, and, of course, then that causes conflict within the home. Once you start to have multiple wives, there's great conflict that comes. You even see that in the book of 1 Samuel, the opening, with uh, the, the prophet Samuel, his mother, and the conflict that she had with a rival wife. It is very difficult within the home if there are multiple wives. And, of course, multiple wives cause conflict in the home, not with just one another, but between their children as well. That there ends up being conflict between children who are stepchildren to one another, but they are not fully related to one another. And as we look at this uh, list of the sons here in chapter 3, verses 2 to 5, some names really jump out at us that we'll come back to as we go through Second Samuel together. And we see the conflict between the brothers. For example, the firstborn son, verse 2, we see is Amnon, the son of Hinnom of Jezreel. What will Amnon do? He will end up raping his stepsister. If it was his full sister, he may not have done it. But his stepsister, Tamar, who's the full sister of Absalom, he will end up raping her. And what will Absalom do in response? He will kill Amnon, as we'll see in the book of 2 Samuel. He'll kill Amnon in response for his sister's rape, and he'll end up trying to take the throne from David. And it's interesting, when Absalom runs away from David, when he kills his brother Amnon and runs away, where does he run to? We read later on that he runs to the kingdom of Geshur, which is his grandfather's kingdom. He, David makes an alliance with Geshur, but what that ends up doing? It means that his son flees up there to Geshur and plots to take over the kingdom from David altogether. And Adonijah, the fourth son, listed in verse 4, he will end up trying to take the throne before his father is even dead and without his father's approval. And so you see these multiple sons from multiple, family, uh, multiple mothers ends up causing conflict within one another. Whereas if they were full sons of each other, I mean, full sons still fight as well. But the fact that they're all stepbrothers leads to, I'm sure, far more conflict, as we'll see in the book of 2 Samuel. So David's wives are his weakness. And we haven't even got to the fact that his adultery with Bathsheba 
His sexual appetite will be his downfall in many ways. And David is far from righteous. He admits this. We opened this, this morning with the psalm, Psalm 19, and with, which David wrote, and he said, Who can discern his errors? Forgive my hidden faults. David was aware of his sins, but he was also aware that he had many hidden faults. Not sure how aware he was of his sexual sin and the sin of taking multiple wives. But he recognises that he has hidden faults. And so Israel's leadership is really a great mess here as we open up chapter 3. See Abner, commander of Ishbosheth's army, an angry, proud man. We see Ishbosheth himself as a weak and fearful man. As soon as someone gets angry, he shuts up. And we see David. What do we see of David? We see a man who is following his sexual appetite, who is sexually immoral. And what did God do in response, of ultimately, for all these bad leaders? Well, he removed them all from office. None kept the power in Israel. And sometimes they lost it, as we see with David. He'll lose it for a time, and then he gets it back. None kept their power. Why? Because eventually they all die. God removes them from office, and they all die. Now, is there any relevance for us today? Well, the same problem persists for us today. The same problems persist for God's people, the church today. 1 Peter 5, that passage that we had read before for us, it says that elders, the leaders of God's people, should be shepherds of the flock that are under their care, looking after them, being good leaders of the people that are caring for them. But sadly, what do we often see in the church today, amongst God's people, amongst the leadership of God's people? What do we see? Well, we see Ishbosheths still ending up in the leadership of, God, um, of God's people, in positions in the church. We see Ishbosheths. Who are the Ishbosheths? Well, they're men who are weak and fearful. Who are weak and fearful. They may speak against sin, like Ishbosheth spoke against Abner's sin. He was being disrespectful of him with this woman. A pastor may say, You shouldn't be doing that. But as soon as the person gets very angry and in their face, what do they do? They step back and they don't say another word. And they're afraid. Sadly, Ishbosheth's in leadership amongst God's people. And who else are in leadership amongst God's people? Well, Abner's. Who are the Abner's? They're men who have strength but get very angry and they're very proud. They're men who are proud and then they, that pride feeds into an anger. Whenever they're rebuked in any way, they get very angry in response and push back. They may not be an elder in the church, but they may be a deacon. This has happened in the church. And they know the popular support of the people because, of course, pastors come and go. But they've been there for a few decades and they, people all know them. And they actually say to the pastor, I can get you fired. Just like Ishbosheth, uh, Abner said to Ishbosheth, I can take the kingdom whoever I want. There are people in leadership positions in churches who will say that. It's happened in the past where they say, I can transfer this church to any pastor I want. And they're undermining the pastor, particularly if the pastor rebukes them in some way. They threaten, I will get rid of you and I'll give this church to someone else. Sadly, Abner's do exist in the church today. And of course, David's exist in the church today as well. They can exist in positions of leadership. Who are the David's? The ones who are used of God to do great things for the people of God, that God even speaks through them. I mean, remember, David wrote large sections of the Bible. God can use people to speak to his people, pastors to speak to their people, to speak through them. But then what happens? Sexual immorality happens. 
and they have a great fall because even though God is using them, they, of course, have a sexual appetite that they're not restraining as they should. And so we see that the problems that were here in chapter 3 of 2 Samuel are still problems for the people of God today, that there are still bad leaders within the church today. There are Ishbosheths, there are Abners, and there are Davids. But before we start to point the finger at Israel's rulers or church leaders, what must we do? Well, we must recognize that Ishbosheth, Abner, David, they all exist in all of us. We're all bad leaders of our little flocks. We've all been given charge of a little kingdom each. We have power and we have control. You may not have anybody else that you're overseeing, but you may. As a head of a family, you may have power. But the sad thing is that Ishbosheth, Abner, and David exist in all of us. Like Ishbosheth, we are often weak and fearful. In the face of angry men, what do we do? We fall silent. We rebuke, but then we put, as soon as someone gets upset, we pull back. And like Abner, we can be angry and proud, undermining those in leadership, maybe in the church or even in the state. We undermine those in positions of power in the state. And like David, we're sexually immoral and create family conflict by our sexual immorality. Maybe not at the same level that David did, but we are impure nonetheless. And so what do we deserve? Well, we deserve what Abner and Ishbosheth and David all received. We deserve everything that we have power over to be taken from us and to die like Ishbosheth, Abner, and David did. So what's the solution for mankind? As we look at chapter 3 there and we grieve, and as we look at church history and we grieve, that Ishbosheth, Abner's, and David's have been around for millennia, and then we see in our own hearts an Abner. And Ishbosheth, a David, is lurking there. What is the solution? What hope is there for us when even David, who was so powerfully used of God and wrote parts of the scriptures, fell? What hope is there for us? Our only hope is Jesus Christ. Why? Jesus is the only perfect king. Unlike Ishbosheth, Jesus is not weak and fearful. In the face of sin, no, Jesus is always strong and courageous. And unlike Abner, Jesus is humble and gentle. If Jesus gets angry, it's a righteous anger, not fed by his pride, but by fed by the law of God. And unlike David, Jesus is not sexually immoral and a creator of family conflicts by his own sin. But how will Jesus help bad leaders like us? Well, Jesus saves us from our sin. And the punishment that we deserve for all the times that we've behaved like Ishbosheth, Abner, and David, he saves us from those times. Jesus forgives our sin. How? By taking the punishment of the sins of his people at the cross. Jesus didn't deserve to die. Abner deserved to die. Ishbosheth deserved to die. David deserved to die. We all deserve to die because of our sin. But Jesus did not. But he did die. Why did he die? Jesus died so those who trust in him will live. They will live forever with him as their king. And what does Jesus do now to help save us from our sins? Well, he gives us his Holy Spirit so that people don't behave, his people do not behave like Ishbosheth and Abner and David. It's so wonderful that once we trust in Christ Jesus, he forgives us of our sins and the death that we deserve for our sins is taken away and one day we will go to be with him in heaven as the king who is perfect. 
But even now, he gives us his spirit. So what happens? We can start putting to death the sins of Ishbosheth and Abner and David that we see in our lives. We can put to death our fear, our pride, our anger, our sexual sin. And by the Holy Spirit, we can start doing the opposite. We can start being like Jesus Christ. What's that? Courageous instead of fearful, humble instead of proud, gentle instead of angry, and pure instead of impure. So what must we all do when we see that leaders of God's people are bad and we see our own leadership is bad? What must we do? We must repent, must turn from our sins and trust in Christ Jesus. How do we do that? Well, we must go to God and confess that we have been an Ishbosheth, that we have been an Abner, that we have been a David as well. We must confess to God that we have been fearful when we shouldn't have been, that we've been angry when we shouldn't have been, that we've been proud and impure, that we've committed sins of commission but also omission. What's that mean? We've omitted being humble and gentle and pure and instead being angry, proud, and impure and fearful. We confess these things to God. This is what we should do. We should confess, and then we should trust that Christ's suffering was the payment for all our sins of commission and omission. All the things that we did wrong, just like Ishbosheth and Abner and David. And then what should we do? Well, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we should put to death the fear the pride, the anger, the sexual sin. And instead, by the Holy Spirit, we should live courageous, humble, gentle and pure lives. That's what we're called to do. We repent, we trust that Jesus died for all our sins, we confess them to him, and then we start to live. That's what repentance means, start to live a way that is pure and humble and gentle and courageous instead. So what about you? Do you see that you're an Ishbosheth? Do you see that you're an Abner? Do you see that you're a David? And then do you mourn? I mean, we can read chapter 3 and mourn about the poor people of Israel, the poor women in David's household. But do we mourn over our sin and the way that we have led badly, badly led our lives? Have you mourned? And have you then come to God and asked God to forgive you? for your sin, for your bad leadership, for all the sins of Ishbosheth, Abner, David, that you have committed in your life. If you have not, do you realise that God is going to still punish you? He's going to punish you. How? By stripping you of all the power that you have in your life. He's going to take you from any leadership position and punish you for eternity in hell. That is your destiny if you have not turned to Christ Jesus, if you have not turned. I encourage you, do it now. If you've never done it before, trust in Christ now for the forgiveness of sin, for the forgiveness of your bad leadership, for all the ways that you've sinned as Ishbosheth, Abner and David have. Now, you may be saying here this morning, yes, I believe that Jesus died for my sins, but how do I know I am forgiven? How do I know I'm forgiven and will be in heaven? How do I have that assurance that I am saved? Well, look at your life. Is the Holy Spirit killing your fear, your pride, your anger, and your sexual sin. Helping you not be an Ishbosheth, an Abner, or a David. And is the Holy Spirit instead helping you to live a courageous life? That when you rebuke someone for sin and they get angry, you stand firm. 
And you may say something more and not keep your mouth closed like Ishbosheth did. I'm not saying that you keep going on and on at people for frivolous matters, but that you still do don't back down, particularly for serious sin. And is the Holy Spirit clearly working in your life with a spirit of humility and gentleness and helping you to live a pure life? If that is you, you're trusting in Christ Jesus, and then you see the Holy Spirit at work putting to death the sins of Ishbosheth, Abner, and David, but also helping you to do what they never did. Well, that's a good sign that you are saved. And I encourage you this morning keep going and thank God for what He's doing in your life and rejoice in Christ Jesus, your perfect King, who is not an Ishbosheth, who's not an Abner, who's not a David, and is showing how kind and good He is by helping you now. He's given you the seal of the Holy Spirit to confirm that one day you will go to be with him and you will never struggle with the sins of Ishbosheth, Abner, and David again. Rejoice in him, in his leadership and his work in yourself. And if you are saved, what else should you do? You should keep going. You should thank God. You should rejoice. What should we all do if we are saved? Well, we should be pointing people around us who are bad leaders everybody is. We should be pointing sinners, bad leaders, to Christ Jesus too. Churches often fail, fail miserably, and pastors fail when they look to pastors to be the saviours from sin. Why? Because great pastors do fail. Pastors can turn out to be complete Ishbosheths. Pastors can turn out to be complete Abners angry and proud and pastors can turn out to be David's sexually immoral and have been sexually immoral for years and no one's been able to see it until it's revealed in some great way and churches then fail because what happens well people are discouraged if they've been trusting in the pastor as a good leader he's the good leader of God's people if they've been trusting in him primarily to save them from their sins, to help them in everything, then, of course, when, when he falls and turns into, show, is revealed as an Ishbosheth, an Abner, or a David, what happens? That person abandons Christianity altogether. They have nothing to do with Christianity. They tried it, they trusted this pastor, and then he failed them, and so they don't want anything to do with Christianity at all. But if we are people who always bring people to Christ as the saviour of sin, rather than to pastors as the saviour of sin, and if pastors always bring people to Christ as the saviour of sin, rather than attracting them to themselves as, I will help you, I will get, help you to get over your sins, just listen to me. If we take them to Christ, what will happen? They will be saved from their sins. And even if a pastor falls greatly, they will still continue with Christianity because Christ is their king. This is what we must do as a people of God. We must always be taking people to Christ. Yes, you can take them to your pastor, but he should be the one taking them to Christ as well. And I encourage you, do not, do not trust myself or the elders of this church to be your saviours from sin. Do not come to us thinking that we can save you from your sin. We have feet of clay. 
We have feet of clay. We do not know what sins may surface in our lives tomorrow. The sinful nature is still within the leaders of this church. And it may turn out that one day we fall terribly into the sins of Ishbosheth, Abner, and David. Do not trust in us. We have feet of clay. But what do the elders know of this church, the pastors of this church know? We know that Jesus has feet of burnished bronze. And he will always stand firm and strong. And he will always save people who come to him from their sins. So listen to us. Only as we take you to Christ, only as we take you to Christ, to follow him. We are just like you. We are bad leaders too of all that has been given to us. We will make mistakes, but we have found a good leader, and that is Christ Jesus. He is the one who has saved us from our sins, and we want the same for you. And so we take you to him, and you should only follow us as we take you to him. He is our only hope. I'm not your hope. Christ is your hope. And so I should always be taking you to him. And so pray for the leaders of this church. I had a whole section of this sermon written up about praying for leaders of the church. But I had to cut something somewhere. And it ended up being more about you going to Christ. But please do pray for the leaders of the church. Pray for them. What should you be praying for them? Pray that they will keep telling you to trust in Christ Jesus. As unbelievers, they will be telling unbelievers to trust in Christ Jesus, but they'll keep telling you to trust in Christ Jesus, you who already believe. There's always room to grow in your faith. You want elders, you want pastors who tell you, keep trusting, grow in your faith. And what else should you be praying for your leaders? Tell them to trust, uh, tell them to pray for them that they will tell you to trust in Christ Jesus. Pray for them that they will trust in Christ Jesus too. They need help, just like you. Always be constant in praying that Joel will trust in Christ. Because Joel's faith is not what it could be. It needs to be stronger. If he is to be kept from the sins of Ishbosheth and Abner and David, then he needs a stronger faith. He needs a strong and healthy faith in God. So always be praying for the leaders of this church that we will tell you to trust in Christ again and again and again, but also pray for us. If you can only pray one prayer for me each day or each week, pray that I will keep trusting in Christ, that I will trust in him as the good leader of my life as well as of your life. Let's come before him in prayer now. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come before you and we praise you as the perfect king. You are not an Ishbosheth, you're not an Abner, and you're not a David. You are always strong, you are always courageous, you are always gentle to your people and faithful. But Lord, we come before you and we confess that we have been afraid when we shouldn't have been. We've been proud, we've been angry, and we've been impure when we should have been courageous and humble and gentle and pure. But we come before you thanking you for dying in the place of your people, for those who trust in you, and for giving us your spirit so that we are forgiven and often are restrained from the sins of Ishbosheth, Abner, and David. Lord, we ask that you would help us to continue to turn to you, to keep trusting in you, and to point others to you too, so that they are saved from their own bad leadership. 
And Lord, if there is anyone here this morning who is still trying to lead their life themselves, oh Lord, we pray that they would see that the sins of Ishbosheth, Abner, and David are their sins as well, that they are bad leaders. They're weak and fearful and proud and angry and impure. And Lord, we pray that they'd be convicted of their sin by your spirit now and turn to Christ as the only good leader of their life and then start to live according to his ways. And we pray this in your name. Amen.